This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Although we suspect you don't know the actual name of the song, which is going to follow in a moment, we're pretty sure that you are familiar with it. Mr. McMillan? Yes, that inescapably hilarious tune is known as Yakety Sax and is probably best known to you as the theme song used on the long-running British sitcom. Well, actually, it wasn't a sitcom. It was, well, I don't know what it was. I don't know what you would call the Benny Hill Show. As far as I'm able to recall, it was on occasion amusing. At any rate, we have to hand it to actor Hugh Grant, who evidently staged a rather hilarious prank recently. Uh, this, this took place amid the resignation of the buffoonish British Prime Minister Boris Johnson. In a peculiarity of the British system, Johnson stepped down as British Prime Minister, not because there was an election, but because he lost his position as party leader. And it turns out that the Tories, the Conservative Party in Great Britain, is going to basically select a new leader, which will then become automatically the new Prime Minister. We're pretty sure Donald Trump's watching this uh, with some interest. But back to Hugh Grant. Apparently, someone gave him the idea that wouldn't it be funny as the Sky News broadcaster was out there probably on, you know, on location with a microphone in front of uh, uh, Parliament announcing the news of Johnson's departure that, that Grant got some speakers up and blared yakety sacks while he was doing so, causing him to have a difficult time keeping a straight face. Actually, slight correction. It was Grant that came up with the idea, but he passed it along to activist Stephen Bray, who is known for blasting music from speakers outside Britain's House of Commons, and the rest is broadcasting history. Writing about Johnson in the Daily Beast, David Rothkopf said that uh, he was the embodiment of the Monty Python idea of the upper-class twit. However, the Daily Beast noted that neither Democrats nor Republicans should laugh at his downfall. Joe Biden's supporters should be alarmed to see a counterpart undone by inflation, supply chain failures, and other forces, which are largely beyond, which are largely beyond the control of a national leader. On the other hand, the Trumpistas uh, can't be happy to watch a once hugely popular nationalist and chronic liar abruptly kicked out. I have to admit, we, we were not particularly up on the, on the narrative surrounding uh, Boris Johnson, and maybe now we don't have to. The Telegraph did note that Brexit, Britain's greatest shift in direction in decades, could not have occurred without Boris Johnson's charisma and persuasive powers, I would add, such as they are. And since we're opening with discussions of politicians who might not be all there, as the saying goes, we can cast a glance closer to home down in the state of Florida, where Herschel Walker, the former NFL running back, is running for Senate. Stephen Bennon, writing on Maddow Blog, which is from the Rachel Maddow Show, of course, had a few things to say about this. Said Bennon, Brian Ballard, a prominent Republican lobbyist in Washington, recently agreed to hold an event for Senate hopeful Herschel Walker and came away with a positive impression of the candidate. Ballard told the Washington Post that those in attendance came away hugely impressed with his grasp on policy. To which Bennon said, that is very hard to believe. 
Walker's had quite a few things to say about uh, things like voting rights, mass shootings, um, etc. And it, it all sort of came out like word salad. But he really outdid himself when he decided to speak to an audience about climate change at a recent campaign event. To quote from Mr. Walker, You know climate change? I'm going to help you all with that real quickly. And I'm going to do it in the Wrightsville way so you can understand what I'm saying. We in America have some of the cleanest air and cleanest water of anybody in the world. So what we do is we're going to put out from the new Green Deal millions or billions of dollars cleaning up our good air. So all of a sudden, China and India ain't putting nothing into cleaning that situation up. So all that bad air is still there. But still, we don't control the air. Our good air decide to float over to China's bad air. So when China get our good air, their bad air got to move. So it moves over to our good airspace. And now we got to clean that back up. Said Bennett, it's tempting to compare Walker's comments to a student trying to do a book report about a book he obviously hasn't read, but that's not quite right. The way the Senate hopeful spoke, he seemed quite sincere, as if he was genuinely offering a meaningful tutorial about an important issue. To which he adds, well, he was not. Or more to the point, this was the latest in a series of examples of the Georgia Republican addressing public policy with comments that were effectively gibberish. Stepping back, the question isn't whether Walker is prepared to serve in the Senate. The question is what Republicans intend to do about the fact that Walker obviously is not prepared to serve in the Senate. And by the answers, by all appearances, is simply keep up the charade and hope the Georgians elect him anyway. We'll be taking a look at what's going on in Georgia soon, I hope, with our good friend Greg Pallast. And I hadn't really wanted to start the show off today on politics, but here we are. I'm immediately drawn to comment upon The Economist which has a provocative cover story in its July 16th issue titled, Wake Up, Democrats! We've had some similar things to say about the Democratic Party and its move toward being, um, well, (laughs) less important politically, I guess you might say, by embracing some fringe opinions that are not not going to resonate with most people in the country. We can't say that, you know, our opinions have, have influenced the people at The Economist, but maybe, but maybe not. Anyway, under, this, under their editorial, Wake Up Democrats, the sub-headline said, For the good of America, the governing party urgently needs to take on its own activists. Note of the editorial, This newspaper does not usually hand out advice to political parties, but America's sickly democracy requires urgent repair. A majority of Republican members of Congress have endorsed Mr. Trump's attempt to steal the previous election, and many of them are likely to see themselves rewarded if the House returns to Republican control. For so long as they pander to their base by embracing Mr. Trump's baleful influence even after he nearly overthrew the Constitution, repair will not come from Republicans. To which I say, yeah, you remember watching what took place on January 6th? I'm sure that a lot of you, like myself, were glued to the television watching what was unfolding on CNN and MSNBC as an attempt was being made by Donald Trump and supporters to overthrow the Constitution of the United States. But as you may well recall, in the wake of an angry mob smashing windows, attempting to locate politicians in the Capitol building that they didn't like, that in the wake of all of that chaos and the disrupting of proceedings for many hours, when they got back to doing their congressional duty, our elected officials of the Republican variety decided to challenge the election results in two states, Arizona and Pennsylvania. And in both cases, a majority, a two-thirds majority 
of Republicans in the House voted not to certify those electors for Joe Biden. And if you're not scared by this, ladies and gentlemen, you're not paying close enough attention. So we're glad to see The Economist mouthing off on this very topic. And I think it warrants further quotations. Fringe and sometimes dotty ideas have crept into Democratic rhetoric, peaking in the feverish summer of 2020 with a movement to, quote, defund the police, unquote, abolish immigration enforcement, shun capitalism, relabel women as birthing people, and inject, quote, anti-racism, unquote, into the classroom. If the Democrats are defined by their most extreme and least popular ideas, they will be handing a winning agenda of culture war grievance to an opposition party that has yet to purge itself of the poison that makes Mr. Trump unfit for office. Goes on to say, moving toward the center ground would not just be a shrewd political tactic, it could also be the beginning of a cure for American democracy. And of course, part of the problem with our American democracy is the fact that our federal government delegates an undue amount of power to small rural states, which the Republicans have rather astutely brought into their camp. Here's what the actual article in the magazine had to say on this topic. Perhaps no place has been a haven for counterculture quite like San Francisco. The Bay Area has hosted psychedelic enthusiasts, beat writers, and gay rights activists. Now another variety of counterculture may have sprung up in the city. Unexpectedly, for the epicenter of leftism in America, it is one of mass discontent with progressive excesses. In February, San Franciscans took the remarkable step of recalling three members of the local board of education who resembled a caricature of wokeness. Despite keeping schools closed for an exceptionally long period, thus harming the least advantaged children, the school board found time to recommend renaming 44 closed schools, including those named after Abraham Lincoln and George Washington on social justice grounds. Then on June 7th, Chesa Bodine, the progressive district attorney of San Francisco, lost his own recall election. Mr. Bodine's compassion for the incarcerated and calls for less punitive punishments were not too radical for the city three years ago. But by 2020, that had changed amid a nationwide rise in homicides and long disaffection over petty crime, open-air drug-taking, and homelessness. London Breed, the city's moderate-leaning mayor, has begun forcefully arguing for more police, not fewer, as was once voguish in progressive circles. She said in December, The reign of criminals who are destroying our city, it is time for it to come to an end. And it comes to an end when we take steps to be more aggressive with law enforcement and less tolerant of all the BS that has destroyed our city. And here's the scary part. The reality is settling in. The Democratic Party faces serious losses in the midterm elections, which will cripple a chance for meaningful legislation. I would say it'll cripple a chance for any legislation. Amazingly, it will probably lose to a party that still embraces Donald Trump despite his attempt to subvert democracy. As the ongoing hearings from the January 6th Congressional Committee have forensically detailed, the Republican Party has articulated no political agenda other than grievance. That means that the Republican message is relatively simple to express. The Democrats are economically incompetent socialists who are trying to open borders, demonize police, indoctrinate children, and ruin America. That message will probably win in 2020. It could even carry Mr. Trump back into the White House in 2024. Suddenly, the clamors for a course correction start to make sense.
Anyway, I'm not going to read the whole damn article. I recommend that you check it out, dear listener. Near the end, it says, The possibility of a humiliating loss to a Republican Party that is unrepentantly descending into anti-democratic conspiracy and that lacks a coherent policy agenda weighs heavily on Democrats and anxious international allies. Anyway, as they said on their cover, wake up, Democrats. Of course, no sooner have I said that than I must report my dismay at seeing that photograph of Joe Biden over in Saudi Arabia doing a fist bump with Mohammed bin Salman. Candidate Biden had declared that he was going to make Saudi Arabia a pariah state for its brutality, and particularly the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, who was in Istanbul in the, in the Saudi uh, embassy there, murdered and cut into pieces. Well, after a little bit of torture. There seems to be no doubt in anybody's mind that Mohammed bin Salman was behind that heinous event. And, uh, and, and Biden said he was going to hold him accountable. And in fact, he said he did. He said at the top of the meeting, he brought it right up. We can just imagine. There must have been an awkward uh, moment from lasting probably 15, 20 seconds before they went on talking about oil. Yeah, Biden reported that, uh, that Crown Prince uh, Mohammed, he basically said he was not personally responsible for it. I indicated that I thought he was. Well, there you go. We have no idea whether, whether Biden actually made the shame-shame motion with his fingers, but maybe he did. Although, granted, this isn't quite as bad as Donald Trump going on a dais in Helsinki with Vladimir Putin and saying, yeah, I know my intelligence agencies are saying he interfered with the election, but, but I asked him and he said he didn't. You know, that's actually something to pull up and look at on YouTube. The expression on Putin's face as Trump is saying this is, is something to behold. Clearly, he cannot believe his good fortune that Donald Trump is actually saying this into a microphone to the world press. And here's a little straight piece of news uh, that is in, the, in the, one of those news brief sections. Currently, you, you can find a newspaper, if you, if you can find a newspaper. The report comes from a group of academics from Yale and other schools who mouthed off and said that a plan by Florida health officials that, that would likely restrict Medicaid insurance coverage for gender dysphoric treatments for tran- transgender people lacks sound medical justification and may be politically motivated. The Florida Agency for Healthcare Administration, and we want to note that, you know, the healthcare people down in Florida are not exactly together on, I don't know, anything you want to cite, but at any rate, the Florida Agency for Healthcare Administration said puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, and sex reassignment surgery have not been proven safe or effective in treating gender dysphoria. Tom Wallace, the state's deputy director of Medicaid, signed off on a report last month. But a group of seven scientists and a law professor from Yale and other schools said in a report that the Florida agency's conclusions are incorrect and scientifically unfounded. To that, all I can say is that if, 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 if progressives and liberals and Democrats want to get behind the idea that, uh, that insurance coverage for gender dysphoric treatments including puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, and sex reassignment surgery, or, or something you want to, you know, give some serious thought to. If you're just going to back that up and say, no, that's politics, these are, these are good things to do, let's go ahead and do them, well, you're going to lose some elections. Because most people think that's nuts. Now, don't get us wrong, we, we, we've tended to embrace a lot of, uh, we, we think anyway, we've tended to embrace a lot of progressive ideas on this program on a pretty damn regular basis. But some months back, when the school board in San Francisco did vote to rename a school named after Abraham Lincoln for politically correct, nonsensical reasons, we, we had to sound off on it. We don't want to see 
the only major party standing up to the Republicans going under. While it's true that Donald Trump is now a private citizen, the fact remains that he put three of his people on the Supreme Court of the United States, which immediately set out to overturn Roe v. Wade. Perhaps you caught the news item that Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh had to sneak out the back door of a Washington, D.C. Morton's Steakhouse, Well, and he, and, and he had to do that before he could get dessert, when protesters gathered out front to heckle him for voting to overturn Roe v. Wade. Conservatives expressed deep outrage that Kavanaugh's fancy steak dinner was spoiled, which, notes Caddy Ruth Ashcroft in Jezebel, was rather ironic given that he and his conservative brethren had just canceled the bodily autonomy of tens of millions of women. Matt Ford, writing in The New Republic, said, You know, according to my own originalist analysis, the right to dinner is not deeply rooted in American history and tradition. That's the standard the court used to arrive at the conclusion that women in 2022 have no more rights than women in 1868 to control their own reproductive lives. Am I using tortured legal and historical analyses to conveniently arrive at a predetermined conclusion about a right to eat dinner? Well, yeah, that's just exactly how originalism works. And Jill Filipovic in her Substack newsletter said, So Kavanaugh, Thomas, Alito, and the others have a right to privacy? How curious. These same justices just decided the Constitution provides no privacy rights and gave a green light to radical government interference all the way up into the excessively all the way up to the extremely private space of a woman's uterus. Anyway, it's hard to feel too bad about Brett Kavanaugh, you know, not being able to get his creme brulee. But, you know, overturning, but, you know, overturning Roe v. Wade wasn't, you know, the only piece of mischief the last session of the court uh, uh, came up with. David Super, writing in the Washington Post, notes that if you ask the question, when can a federal agency enforce regulatory laws passed by Congress, the answer appears to be only when the conservative justices of the Supreme Court decide it can. Of course, that's quoting law professor David Super, noting that that was the chilling warning in the West Virginia versus EPA decision a few weeks ago when the court ruled 6-3 to three, that the EPA cannot rely on the Clear Air Act to broadly regulate greenhouse gas emissions from energy plants. This ruling goes far beyond dramatically eliminating the federal government's ability to address climate change and challenges the government's authority to enforce any regulation. The court conceded that the Clean Air Act authorized the EPA to, to select, quote, the best system of emission reduction, unquote, for power plants. But the court ruled that since phasing out coal-generated power plants would have a major impact, Congress has to pass new legislation explicitly enabling the EPA to do so. Under this major questions doctrine, every attempt to regulate industry can lead to years of litigation, with the court's judicial activists then making national policy. And the question is then asked, what happened to this idea that justices should leave policymaking to the political branches? Yeah, the originalist conservatives uh, in the Republican Party and court gripe about the supposed activism of liberals, but evidently that, that only applies to liberals. And... Writing in Vox, Ian Milheiser notes the Supreme Court just agreed to hear a case that poses the gravest threat to American democracy since the January 6th attack. As the court recently closed out its tumultuous term, it announced the next session it will take up Moore versus Harper, which could give partisan state legislatures total unchecked power over elections. 
The case is about North Carolina's highest court invalidating the GOP-controlled state legislature's gerrymandered congressional map. The redistricting, the state court ruled, gave Republicans extreme partisan advantage in violation of the state constitution. Republicans sued to reinstate that map, basing their argument on a right-wing legal theory known as the Independent State Legislature Doctrine. This theory holds that the Constitution gives state legislatures sole power to set election laws with governors and state courts cut out of the process entirely. Were the High Court to endorse that theory, state legislatures could legally do what Donald Trump sought to do in 2020, toss out millions of election ballots for arbitrary reasons, and declare the loser of a presidential election the winner. We'll continue to follow that story. I need to unwind here a little bit, Mr. McMillan. Let's jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for drunks. With the news that the City Council of Kalamazoo, Michigan, decriminalized public urination, to which I would add, and high time. Explained the city attorney, Clyde Robinson, it's kind of crude, but we are a college town, and students filled with beer often can't seem to find a restroom. I think Mr. Miller and I both understand this problem. Go. Speak for yourself. Well, that forces me to insert the public service announcement to remind people that if they are able to urinate, say, in their backyard, they're saving quite a bit of water in a plush toilet, while, at the same time, fertilizing their backyard soil. It's something to think about in drought times. That's all I got to say. Although, we're pretty sure that, you know, drought conditions had nothing to do with the decision up in Kalamazoo. I have to admit, I, I do enjoy saying Kalamazoo. It was reportedly a a bad week last week, on the contrary, for colorful ethnic analogies in the wake of First Lady Jill Biden deciding that she had to apologize for praising Latino Americans during a speech in Texas. She, She praised them for being as unique as the breakfast tacos here in San Antonio. Personally, I think very highly of breakfast tacos, and and I don't see the slight in that at all. I kind of think that not apologizing for it would, you know, look like you're not pandering to wokeness. And speaking of pandering to wokeness, it was an ugly week last week for developing practical skills with the news that Williams College in Massachusetts scrapped as racist its 229-year-old requirement that students who can't swim take a swimming course. Since 81% of the students who needed that course were minorities, the faculty reasoned that the requirement had a disparate impact on said minorities. I I guess it's a disparate impact to have to jump in the pool and learn how to swim. Professor Dan Barawi noted that learning to swim lowers your chance of dying a preventable death. Seems to us that's a good idea. This does remind me of the time several decades back when um, I, I, I took a black friend of mine aside. His name was Daryl Hoagland. And I said, Daryl, you don't know how to swim. Let me teach you how to swim. To which he kept saying, there's no need. There is no need. I kept saying, well, 
What if you're on a boat and it sinks? To which he replied, I'm not getting on no boat. I'd say, you know, one thing you don't want to die of is drowning. To which he replied, one thing I'm definitely not going to die of is drowning. Anyway, that was a long time ago. I hope in the meantime, Daryl's learned how to swim. And finally, we're not sure whether this is good or bad or ugly or all three for the LGBTQ plus community, but here's the story. A woman now says she's sexually attracted to inanimate objects and, on account of that, once married the Eiffel Tower. Erica Labrie, described as a competitive archer, apparently has a new love, a fence. She self-identifies as objectum sexual, someone who falls in love with objects. A previous documentary examined her love for the Eiffel Tower, and in a new TikTok video, she expresses rapture over a fence with thrillingly perfect geometry. Those angles, fabulous, she said. I would like to get to know this fence better. Well, how do you think the Eiffel Tower feels being dumped for a fence? Well, I think we can cue that one up. Yeah, we'll have more to say in our second segment about that subject of feelings. In the couple minutes we have left, we want to cite problems with agriculture. Turns out that almond exports are down by about 13% this year due to supply chain issues. There's about 1.3 billion pounds of unsold almonds still sitting in piles at processing and packing facilities. While the costs of production and water supplies are an all-time high, the price of almonds have fallen to an all-time low, about $2 a pound. How will this affect the, uh, the great water grab, the ongoing power struggle in California over the Delta's water? Well, we're not sure yet. We'll, we'll watch that one. And I don't, ever, I don't know what became of those commercials that, that were on television a couple decades ago for Grey Poupon mustard. You probably remember them. A car would pull up to a, a limousine or a very fancy car. <laughs> guy would stick his head out the window and say, excuse me, do you have any Grey Poupon? Well, it seems that that commercial uh, is gone, and, and, it, and for the time being, so is Dijon mustard. Turns out that over in France, Dijon mustard is made with a very specific seed of mustard. It's the so-called brown mustard species. It is fundamental to French cuisine. But bad weather in Burgundy has cut domestic seed growth, and the war in Ukraine cut off a fallback source of supply. As a consequence, lately finding Dijon has been almost impossible. Parisian musician Didier Marani was quoted as saying, there's some mustard, referring to jars of honey mustard and English yellow mustard, but it's not the good stuff. Speaking of good stuff, we think we have quite a bit of it coming up in our second segment, which you must stick around for. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. More to come. No, no. 